It is April 2021, and the Perseverance rover has been making its lonely progress across the surface of Mars for two months. It's the fifth rover sent to explore the Red Planet. It looks very similar to its older sibling, Curiosity, which landed in 2021. But this mission is different. This time, it will very quietly make history. The rover stops in its tracks and activates a device buried inside its body. It is a golden box about the size of a toaster, which begins to heat up. As it approaches its working temperature of 800 degrees Celsius, the care of NASA and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory pays off. A thin layer of gold protects the rover, while 3D printed nickel alloys heat and cool the atmospheric gases flowing through the device. Mars's atmosphere is 96% carbon dioxide, and as the electrolysis process begins, Perseverance begins venting a waste product, carbon monoxide. But accumulating in the heart of this chemistry experiment is something much more precious, because human ingenuity has generated oxygen on another world for the first time. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this episode, we are talking about an aspect of space exploration that will be critical in the coming decades. As we develop the space around Earth and the Moon further, enabled by platforms such as the Lunar Gateway Space Station, see episode 118 for the episode we created with NASA, the cost of transporting all of the necessary materials into orbit and then off to wherever they're needed will become absurd. But the majority of the effort to get supplies into space is wrapped up in escaping Earth's powerful gravity. The cost of getting one kilogram of mass just to low Earth orbit varies enormously from rocket to rocket, but the cheapest prices are of the order of $1,000. Now think further afield to Mars. Blasting four astronauts off the Martian surface to return home would require around 32 tonnes of fuel and oxygen alone, according to the Jet Propulsion Lab. Supplying everything from Earth is prohibitive, with missions costing in the billions of dollars. Which is why that little device on Perseverance is such a critical moment in the history of space exploration. Called MOXIE, which stands for Mars Oxygen in Situ Resource Utilisation Experiment, it is our first step towards generating some of the resources we need to traverse the solar system away from Earth's restrictive gravity. Although little Moxie only produced enough oxygen for a human to breathe for 15 minutes, it was the start of something much more far-reaching. In this episode, we will learn exactly what kind of resources await the growing number of budding space mining companies. We will get a picture of a new economy, free from the surly bonds of Earth, and we will learn about current efforts to train the first generation of space miners. But before we get into the glittering future among the stars, we need to look to the past and understand how the ideas and ambitions around space resources have come to be. But first, a message from our episode sponsor, MapleFlow Software. The idea of space seems boundless. To reach for the stars, engineers need to bring their creativity and design skills and adopt tools that support the free flow of information. 
MapleFlow calculation software lets you gather all the project design information in one freeform layout. MapleFlow connects the way engineers work with the creative way you think. Design guide references, plots, diagrams, and equations can be edited and moved around as projects change, without the danger of breaking spreadsheet formula links. No more frustration with trying to show equations neatly. MapleFlow uses real math notation and supports changes of units with ease. Design documents become easier to prepare in a professional print-ready format, saving your team time to review. So whether you're designing machines for space exploration or calculating stress loads for earthbound projects, MapleFlow helps you achieve more. Visit maplesoft.com mapleflow for a free trial. And now, back to the episode. This is Angel Abood Madrid, director of the Center for Space Resources at the Colorado School of Mines. He leads a research program on the human and robotic exploration of space and the utilization of its resources. Space mining, but not as you might think of it. Ever since resources from space were considered of interest at the very beginning of the space age, and we're talking the early 1960s. In fact, the very first meeting, serious meeting from NASA to consider the use of lunar resources for what was to be the Apollo missions it was in 1962. And back then, the idea was let's use resources to extract the oxygen that astronauts may use. And it didn't happen just because Apollo was, uh, at the end, missions that lasted just a couple of hours and then they returned. So there was not a need to create an infrastructure to extract the resource. But that idea of how can resources help us when we go to space, state. From the very early economic analysis that were done on this. Some of these early studies were done at the Colorado School of Mines, and it became apparent early on that for at least the moment, the fever dreams of mining asteroids for trillions of dollars of rare metals doesn't really make sense. It's too hard to beat the price of resources here on Earth. And I'm talking every resource. Uh, minerals, metals, gases, uh, even energy sources. And we still have plenty of resources here on Earth. We have barely scratched the surface, literally. And so there's no way to compare the cost to go to space to obtain a metal and bring it to Earth. It didn't make sense. What it was clear all along, and by the community as a whole, is that resources in space are good to be used in space uh, on this concept of living off the land. If you're gonna to travel to a place, don't carry it with you. It's extremely energy intensive. It's extremely expensive to do that. So avoid bringing stuff from Earth as much as you can. Generate and use resources where they already are. And in that way, you can increase the level of exploration that you can do, reduce the cost, and give an opportunity to do many more things than, than if you constantly depend on Earth. And, and that has been true all along. I mean, this idea of bringing things to Earth may not happen for many, many, many years, decades, if not more than that, until either we have started to drill extremely deep, we're using too much power, we're causing major environmental degradation, and at the time where infrastructure in space is such that the prices start being comparable. And so that will, that will take a while. 
1999 there was a further coming together of the prospective industries. The Space Resources Roundtable was founded and it sat at the Colorado School of Mines. And the intention was to have a forum in which not just space professionals, but uh, members of the extractive industries, uh, mining, oil and gas, equipment manufacturers, but also financial analysts and policy analysts and economists could discuss about the field of space resources. Because as cities on Earth, resources involve all of these aspects. They require the science, the engineering, but also the companies that are going to get involved in, 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 in business cases and plans. And so it was put together in 1999. It started small. Maybe 20 to 25 people attended, and most of them members of NASA and some academics that were interested in the field. But it started growing over time as the interests, mainly of NASA, began to change. When NASA started saying that they we wanted to go to the moon in the 2000s, the mid-2000s, then the topic started being more about the moon and more people got interested because all of a sudden there were opportunities to do research on on how to excavate and drill and extract resources for those type of missions. The techniques that will be used will depend on the resources targeted. And here is an important thing that has to be understood, and sometimes it is confused. The moment one starts talking about space resources, people gravitate to space mining. But it's interesting that there are resources that are that cannot be mined, that are intangible. There's solar energy, which is practically limitless, that can be used to power spacecraft, but also in the future is one of the few things that can be brought to Earth because you can collect it with solar panels and solar collectors that can transform that energy into microwaves and can be beamed down to, to certain points on Earth. Solar panels in space do not need to worry about cloud cover, and there's a near limitless volume of space to occupy with panels meaning that there's no worry of covering the entire countryside in solar farms. Then there's the properties of space itself, which have niche and extremely delicate manufacturing applications. Low gravity and ultra-high vacuum in, in space stations that can be used to produce products on, on, on an environments that are very difficult to replicate here on Earth. And so you use the, the, the benefits of that environment to create these uh, products that have much better qualities. And again, those are the, one of the few things that can be brought down to Earth. Interestingly enough, uh, space resource, the very first space resource that we used in space was just location, just the view from above, uh, satellites. And those has given us weather forecasting, global communications, uh, the ability to pinpoint every location of the Earth with extreme accuracy. They allow us to continually monitor the health of our planet. And that's a big resource that was used at the very beginning of the space age. Once you start talking about more concrete elements, like metals and minerals and gases and volatiles, then you start talking about mining techniques. How do you collect them? How do you extract them? And it will depend on the resource. If it's uh, water that can be found on the lunar poles or, or as part of minerals in, in asteroids or in subsurface glaciers on Mars, then the first ideas revolved around similar mining technologies and equipment to those already employed on Earth. But more and more we're finding that might as well start from technologies for, that can be used in that environment, in low gravity, extreme temperatures, 
uh, vacuums, uh, radiation, all sorts of different environment that, that one finds from Earth. And so slowly those technologies have been adapted to probably just drilling or maybe just using solar energy to heat up the lunar ice so that it can be transformed from ice to vapor and trap it. Or you can heat up the dust from those planetary bodies to extract the oxygen from rocks uh, or also heat up, heat them up to extract the metals. So it will depend on the resources that you're going after. We are already looking into some of the challenges we now face to get ready to identify, extract and utilise resources in space. Designing equipment that can survive and operate efficiently in these hostile environments is one critical factor. Testing such equipment requires the recreation of these conditions on Earth. So think about one destination, the Moon. You're going to have to do your experiments under a vacuum. You're going to have to subject your samples to extreme temperatures, very cold, very hot. You are going to have to replicate, if you're dealing with the lunar dust, it's called the regolith. This is electrostatically charged. Uh, and so you have to replicate that. And ultimately you have to replicate the gravitational environment. So what we do at our laboratories uh, at the Colorado School of Mines is trying to replicate the environment. This involves vacuum chambers, lowering the temperature to minus 190 degrees Celsius, then to plus 120 degrees Celsius to simulate the day and night cycle on the moon. And also we try to replicate uh, the conditions of the soil uh, as much as possible from what we learn from uh, the Apollo missions. The dust on the moon is extremely abrasive. It's, it has jagged edges and it's glassy has never seen any humidity, so it's highly reactive. So we tried to simulate those particles and that dust to the sizes that actually you're, you're gonna find over there. Low gravity testing is achieved by parabolic aircraft to simulate low gravity for 30 to 40 seconds at a time. When you need longer times, we may have to make use of uh, other means to either conducted in, in a centrifuge on the space station, or there are about to be now flights that can take you to a suborbital flight, just, to, uh, just outside the, the atmosphere, and for four minutes or so, uh, under a centrifugal type of machine, you can replicate also uh, the one-sixth gravity that you find on the moon. So the whole point and the whole challenge right now is try to design your system so that they can operate on a completely different environment. And we're doing that for excavators, for drilling machines, for chemical plants to extract uh, oxygen and minerals and metals, for what's called space manufacturing. Uh, that means doing, uh, being able to, to manufacture tools and spare parts. Space construction, how do you build uh, roads and berms and landing pads? Uh, these are all the things in which we're working and again, trying to do it as close as possible to the real environmental conditions. In the popular imagination, mining is drilling, and that will also be an important part of resource extraction. If you think about what is that we do on Earth, we first identify the resource. Uh, once you find it, usually it's, uh, uh, it's trapped in, in veins and rocks and that you have to, to drill. Because you need to pulverize the material before it goes into a machine 
So you can extract whatever you're interested. And, and so uh, that is a very important component. Uh, luckily, for example, on the moon, nature has done a lot of the work for us because for billions and years, billions and years, it has been, uh, it has been struck by, by comets, by asteroids, by meteorites and micrometeorites. And what has happened is that the bedrock has been pulverized to a very fine dust all over the surface of the moon. So in a way, the crushing has been done. So mostly it's a case of taking the dust, processing it, separating out the undesirable elements, treating the resulting material, and then extracting the resource. But the job has been done there. But you still have to drill in cases in which, for example, water ice may be trapped underneath the, the, the lunar dust in the permanently shadow regions of the moon. And so you have to drill to get to the ice, heat it up so that then you can bring it into a vapor form and then trap it somewhere else. Or if you want to go to Mars, in Mars there has been different drilling operations being conducted to get down to the subsurface glaciers to get to that ice. Uh, and, and so drilling is a, is, a, is a very important component. Space resources is a broad category. It really is using anything available to us, anything to avoid hauling precious supplies from Earth. Even derelict satellites could provide useful materials. One of the major areas of study at the moment is identifying the location and viability of these resources. Even the Moon, which has a very similar material makeup to the Earth, is structured in a very different way. The material that you find on the Moon may be similar to the one on Earth, but the geological processes that created them, both the Earth and the Moon, are different. And that's very important to understand. On Earth, you have that most of the materials that you go after, you know, the metals and the like, they're concentrated, highly concentrated on areas because there has been movements from, you know, the mantle that go into fissures and uh, heats up, they go into these regions and they start concentrating as they start to come out, let's say, uh, in a simplified form. On the moon, it was not like that. The hypothesis is that the Moon was formed from the collision of a Mars-like planet called Theia with the Earth 4.5 billion years ago. Material from the ancient Earth and from Theia was ejected and then eventually coalesced, forming the Moon. Hence the material similarity. But in the Moon's case, it cooled very rapidly. Yes, there was some volcanic activity that brought some of the material to the surface, but you don't find the same type of, uh, of concentrated mechanisms that you find on Earth. So yes, you may find iron, you may find titanium or other ones, but they are found in, in small amounts in different sections. So you have to understand the processes that gave rise to the moon in order to see where the resources are, in what amount, in what concentration, with what minerals, so that then you can adapt the extractive technology. So that's a very important thing. Ultimately, just three things are necessary to have a viable commercial operation that obtains resources. You have to identify them, you have to have the technology to recover them, and you have to have a customer. And for the longest time, the only potential customer was NASA. They had exploration objectives and were prepared to consider in-situ resource exploitation. But now we have entered the new space age. 
as this has become of interest around the world, now there are several space agencies around the world that are interested in the same type of things. And not only to satisfy their needs for living in a different planetary body, but also to do more in terms of exploration. We are limited on the number of things that we can send from Earth. Since the beginning of the space age, we have depended 100% from our Earth to explore space. We have to carry everything with us, every little bolt and nut and, and consumable and propellant and, and communication satellites and metals and everything. And that's going to limit what we can do in space. So space agencies realize that in order to expand their exploration goals, to have larger payloads, to be able to stay on planetary bodies for longer, they are going to have to use space resources. So they are definitely the main customer. But starting in around 2016 or so, uh, the first companies, the first clients of space resources started coming out. And these were private sector companies. These were rocket companies that were interested on lowering the cost of transportation, which has impeded us from doing more in space. That is why just a few countries had gone out into space. That's why less than 600 people have visited the space because it is so expensive and so energy intensive to launch things to space. So they say, well, what if you can provide us with propellant in, in, in orbit that at a lower cost that we can do now, just to satisfy our current needs, nothing exotic to just to launch satellites, communication satellites into orbit. See episode 55, Saving Structures with Satellites, or episode 128, Positioning Satellites in New Space, for more exciting uses that the modern satellite industry is tackling. So these are for commercial applications. So the moment a client showed up and saying, if you can provide me with hydrogen and oxygen, we don't care if it comes from the moon or asteroids or Mars, if you can provide it at a certain price, we'll buy it. Then the whole field started changing very rapidly. No longer were space agencies the only customer, but now are the, 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 the transportation companies that can lower transportation. And the moment you lower transportation, you make space more available, you can refuel satellites, you can refuel rockets, and you can start opening up uh, uh, many commercial activities in space. And, and that's when the client or the customer or the demand really started increasing at a very rapid pace to the moment, to the point that right now, uh, it's, it's uh, yes, space agencies will, will be the, probably the very first consumers or resources, but the moment that the infrastructure is set up, then industry will, will follow. Just like it happened on earth for railroads, for airplanes, for highways, anything in which the government becomes the first uh, anchor tenant or the first user of it, at some point it opens up all sorts of possibilities for the private sector to get involved. For the first time, the language of space resources is firmly on the exploration plans of space agencies themselves. In previous years, the idea had been a scenario of interest, a curiosity, but now it's seen as a critical part of making exploration in space sustainable. If we're gonna to go to the moon and stay there for not just a couple of days, but be there for weeks and months or, or for an indefinite time, we are going to have to use the resources. There's no other way around it, let alone Mars. Mars, there's no way if we're gonna have a permanent presence there that we can, that we have to carry everything with us. It's just extremely expensive. It will never happen. 
The first serious companies that entered the arena around 10 years ago were large. They planned to do everything themselves, identify, launch, extract, return. They went away. Now the buzz is around small companies. A prospector, a launch company, a data company, an extraction company. An infrastructure is beginning to be developed, at least at the planning level. What's going to happen in the next five years? Well, you're going to have to have the first part. You have to identify the resource so you make it uh, so you know with enough certainty that companies can go after it. And so you're going to start seeing many missions from private industry and from space agencies going to the moon just to see what is that we found in terms of resources, how much is there, how is it concentrated, what is the amount. Once we know the resource with enough certainty, you will start seeing, and almost at the same time, demonstration missions to demonstrate at least that we can extract the water or the oxygen from the moon and what it will take, what is the power, the volume, the mass, so that we can at some point, once we know the resource you know, with, more certainty, with more certainty, to scale it up so that you can now do it on a, a much uh, larger, for more larger amounts. The MOXIE experiment on Mars may soon have company. And to meet this impending demand, the Colorado School of Mines is expanding the educational side of the space resources sector to provide the industry with the skills that will soon be needed. For decades, the school had been conducting research, but it was not until around 2016 that they decided to take the leap and launch an educational programme, mostly due to interest from NASA and other space agencies and the growing interest of the private sector. And that's when we decided to launch the Space Resources Graduate Programme that offers certificates, master's degrees and PhD degrees. The thing is that the moment we launched it, at first we, we were not very sure of how many people will be interested on it. But it was very clear from the following day that the interest was coming from all over the world. There were a lot of recent graduates that were interested, but about 85% of the students were established professionals. In a variety of fields, from the aerospace industry, but also from chemical engineering positions, computer science, the, the extraction industries, mining, oil and gas, equipment manufacturers. But also there were those people interested because this is a very multidisciplinary field. So you have financial analysts, we have economists, we have lawyers, we have uh, several entrepreneurs. This has become a very uh, important area for entrepreneurs to get involved. Uh, we have members of the military and we have policy analysts. So it's, 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 it's just like on Earth, you need all of those different disciplines. And after running the programme for four years, the school started to feel that it was important to begin to expose undergraduates to this field. And mostly on the, on the mining engineering departments, the geology, the geophysics, even the petroleum engineering department, to see how is that they can apply their expertise on extremely challenging problems. There's many challenging problems on Earth. Students will encounter in their mining careers that they're going to have to extract resources from ever more challenging places. They have to go deeper, places where it's uh, riskier to go, where you have uh, elements that are radioactive and, and so you have to automate your systems. But why not expose them to a field that they're going to counter at some point in their lives? If you think about it right now, graduates from college have 50 years ahead of them and surely they're going to encounter the field of, of, of space, of space mining and space resources. So not only they can get trained on this, so they're ready when the time comes for opportunities, but also they can start working on 
on pushing their thinking outside the box, literally outside the planet. Ultimately, resources in space could perform much the same role for the economy out there as they do on Earth. They, resources on Earth are the main engine of our technological society. Everything on, on our planet runs with resources, but they're somehow hidden underneath everything that we do. We use our phones and we use our cars and we have our homes and everything else, and we don't even think about what makes this possible. So resources are in a way uh, a, 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 a means to an end. And same thing will happen in space. Space resources are not a destination. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're not the end. They're not the thing that we're gonna go after because we're gonna become trillionaires. That will be a very mundane objective to go to space. They're hidden. They're, they're a means to an end. There will be an enabling mechanism to fulfill all the things that we want to do in space and make it possible. The reason why we want to explore further, it will entail space resources. If we want to stay in planetary bodies, it will entail space resources. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written as hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson. Series Supervision by John Young. And our own extraterrestrial extraction is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner this week, MapleFlow Software, and also to the Colorado School of Mines. Thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. And don't forget to check out our website and sign up to our newsletter for the latest engineering announcements and developments from around the world. Mm -hmm.